Wish you weren't hearing an ad right now? Want to get the next episode even sooner? Well, after the show, head to watchnebula.com slash radio. You'll get access to our original podcasts ad-free, plus exclusive originals and experimental shows from your favorite educational-ish creators. And best of all, you're helping us to make even more amazing content. Just go to watchnebula.com slash radio. It really helps us out. Global climate change is wreaking havoc on this planet. In the Pacific, many islands are projected to disappear like Atlantis. In the Arctic, polar ice caps are melting. In Australia, devastating brush fires have killed 3 billion animals. And in America, we're getting once in a century storms twice a decade. And like with most things, it's up to the lawyers to save the day. Because whether the world acts to mitigate the effects of climate change depends a lot on the state of the law in the world's most developed nations. And when the law has to change, who are you going to call? Lawyers. Hey, Legal Eagles, it's time to think like, well, a lawyer, because like it or not, the lawyers are going to have a role in fighting climate change, because climate change is a global problem which demands global solutions. And often, emissions that are made in one area affect another place in the world, if not the world at large. So to really impact the temperature of the world, nations have to act in concert over the long term for decades. However, the ability of the world to tackle climate change depends substantially on how sovereign nations are constrained by their own form of government, and especially their laws. And not all countries view climate change the same way. Denmark, for instance, passed a law that made climate change actually illegal. Now, every Every year, the Danish government will need to find a majority parliamentary approval of its global and national climate strategies. The law commits Denmark to making all major policy decisions through a green lens to assess their impact on climate. And the country has to share green technologies with other nations so that they can reduce emissions. Eight of the 10 parties in the Danish parliament voted for the law, which limits how much future governments can undermine it. But what's possible in Denmark might not be possible in the US. And right now, the United States is not exactly known for passing bipartisan legislation. So America's strategy may be more, well, American. Because in America, we just sue each other. So if you're climate mindful, you probably wonder how individuals might be able to pressure the government to act through lawsuits. And naturally, many people have attempted to sue fossil fuel companies for the emissions that are a byproduct of those products. And lawsuits in Europe have had some success in this area. Particularly last March, a UK Court of Appeal said that plans to expand Heathrow Airport were unlawful because they failed to take the Paris Climate Agreement into account. But in America, climate change plaintiffs have yet to find big success in federal court. The first major hurdle for American litigants is whether cases can satisfy the threshold procedural requirements for a court to even decide a case. These include concepts like standing, which examines whether litigants are the right parties to bring a lawsuit. Most recent cases brought by American citizens have been knocked out at these early stages of litigation. For example, a 2018 case brought by Oregon children initially satisfied a motion to dismiss, but the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed. The child plaintiffs asserted that they had a Fifth Amendment right to a, quote, climate system capable of sustaining human life, but the Ninth Circuit said that the kids lacked standing to bring the claims. The court rejected the premise that courts should decide climate change issues, saying that only the legislative and executive branches of the government have that power. And this isn't terribly surprising. American courts aren't supposed to set policy, so many U.S. courts have dismissed lawsuits on the basis that courts simply can't set a policy where the executive branch has been given authority to regulate. And that was one of the issues in the first Supreme Court case to decide whether corporations could be sued for greenhouse gas emissions, American Electric versus Connecticut. The lawsuit was filed by eight states, New York City, and three land conservation groups against the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, as well as several other power companies. The plaintiffs alleged that the defendants were a public nuisance because their CO2 emissions contributed substantially to global warming. 
warming. The Supreme Court held that only the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, could set emission standards and that the EPA's authority prevented plaintiffs from suing under a legal theory based on federal common law, nuisance law. And based on the EPA's designated authority, it's up to the EPA to decide whether and how to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from the defendant power plants. States and cities don't have the right to sue the utility companies. In 2021, the Supreme Court will decide a major climate change case, but only on the narrow technical issue about whether the case must be removed from state court to federal court. The city of Baltimore filed the lawsuit in 2018 against oil and gas companies saying that their products had dangerous impacts on climate, injuring Baltimore citizens. And defendants filed a motion to remove the case to federal court. Now, the Fourth Circuit eventually decided the case should remain in state court. Defendants petitioned the Supreme Court for review because the circuit courts differ on the federal grounds for removal and whether the state courts needed to review every ground for removal. And right now, your eyes may be glazing over with boredom since this seems like a side skirmish in a much bigger battle. And while this is definitely a technical issue, at the same time, the court's ruling will certainly impact the speed at which climate change cases are reviewed. But it's also possible the Supreme Court may express doubt about the judiciary's rule in deciding climate change cases. The Supreme Court doesn't like to decide things it doesn't absolutely have to. And this would mean punting on these substantive issues so that America's extremely high-functioning, very efficient Senate and House of Representatives could pass beautiful legislation. I have a feeling it's going to be beautiful. And even if plaintiffs survive early motions to dismiss, liability determinations are very complicated to sort out. How much fault can you attribute to one particular defendant? What happens when all of the emissions are commingled? And how do you divvy out the damages amongst the entire world? And plaintiffs would have to show that the defendants created actual harm and damages to the plaintiffs. This involves a battle of experts and uh, real questions about remedies. And while European litigants have been successful in changing actual policy, the difficulty of determining a remedy has prompted many American courts to question whether the judicial branch is really the right forum for these disputes. Now, at this point, the question you're probably asking is, well, what about international law then? Well, there's a reason that the US generally doesn't like to play nice under international rules, but international law is increasingly playing a major role on climate disputes with good reason. For example, smaller island nations are in an especially precarious position. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reported in 2014 that one meter of sea level rise would wipe out 15% of Pacific islands. And that means the destruction of many people's homes and entire cultures. For example, Tuvalu, an island of approximately 10,000 people, has a high point of only 13 feet above sea level. Their citizens claim that the actions of the world's industrialized nations are slowly flooding the island. Tuvalu is arguing that some nations owe them compensation. And although industrialized nations make up only 20% of the world's population, they account for 60% of the annual carbon dioxide emissions. And America is responsible for 25% of all global greenhouse gas emissions all on its own. America. So Tuvalu is threatening to sue the US and Australia since both are not signatories to the Kyoto Protocol, the climate change treaty that requires lower greenhouse gas emissions from industrialized nations. Now, a claim like that might conceivably be brought in the United Nations International Court of Justice. Every country that is a member of the UN is a member of the court, but not all countries accept its jurisdiction. The ICJ has two kinds of jurisdiction. First, the court has jurisdiction over disputes between states that have accepted the jurisdiction of the court. There are 74 governments that accept the ICJ's jurisdiction, but the US is not one of them. However, if Tuvalu wanted to bring a lawsuit against a country that was part of the ICJ, it 
probably could. The ICJ decides cases using international conventions and customs. Its decisions, however, generally don't apply as precedent. And on top of that, the court's decision binds only the parties to that particular case and controversy. Now, the ICJ's second type of jurisdiction is the ability to give advisory opinions. The UN General Assembly or the Security Council may request an opinion from the ICJ. These opinions would not be binding, but they can influence public policy. Many Pacific Islands are now pushing for an advisory opinion on climate change through the ICJ, but even if they were successful, that would be a non-binding decision. So international lawsuits are not likely to have a huge effect on US policy as it stands. So the bottom line is that the lawyers are trying to save the day, but those pesky judges and courts just keep getting in the way, which means that we're going to have to turn to, and I hate to say it, the politicians. We're going to have to adopt some new laws. And not only that, but some of the laws that we've already adopted are frankly counterproductive. So the question is, what laws should America pursue? Well, first we can turn to some global success stories regarding greenhouse gas emissions. For example, Norway has aggressively targeted gasoline and diesel burning cars, creating incentives for electric vehicles. Electric cars now account for about half of all vehicles in Norway, which you would know if you've ever seen a GM ad featuring Will Ferrell. No way, Norway. Knock, knock. It's America. And we're gonna punch you in the face. Now, every major automotive manufacturer in the world is developing fleets of plug-in vehicles. American lawmakers can create incentives for electric cars. The European Union banned the use of hydrofluorocarbons, which are greenhouse gases used in air conditioners and refrigerators. The US can and has in the past taken similar action. British Columbia adopted a carbon tax. It has caused emissions to fall. And there have been in the past times when American citizens were willing to pay so-called sin taxes, taxes on booze and cigarettes, in order to finance things like sports stadiums. Canada and the U.S. agreed in 2016 to curb methane emissions from oil and gas operations. The Trump administration rolled back a lot of those efforts, but it's possible that the Biden administration could unroll back those efforts if they wanted to. And while there have been global success stories, there have also been some local state-based success stories as well here in the United States. For example, California has been leading the way on energy-efficient building standards since the 1970s. The state standards continue to get stricter as new technologies arrive on the scene. And if these standards were adopted throughout the United States, it would impact emissions for heating and cooling on a nationwide basis. States like New York and California already require utilities to produce their electricity from zero carbon sources. That means that solar, wind, water, and potentially nuclear power are more enticing. If the rest of the nation followed suit, it could mean a huge reduction in CO2 emissions. And the New York Times estimates that if the US adopted these policies, it would quote, slash greenhouse gas emissions in the United States by roughly 29% below 2005 levels by 2025 and roughly 50% by 2050. And then there are some more controversial but potentially even more efficacious policies available like cap and trade, which allows individuals more choice over how they reduce emissions. Now, cap and trade, as most people envision it, is a different method than the typical command and control approach where the government just simply sets performance standards or forces consumers to pick electric vehicles, for instance. Cap and trade allows the market to determine the price on carbon and the price drives investment decisions and spurs market innovation. Is this a tax? Well, cap and trade differs from a tax in that it provides a high level of certainty about future emissions, but not about the price of those emissions, which leads to a question about the constitutionality of a cap and trade policy, because a policy is only as good as whether it is constitutional in the first place to be implemented. So while some have questioned whether a federal cap and trade program would be constitutional because of the limits of the constitution's commerce clause, some states have had a cap and trade program for a pretty long time. For example, California, which has had a cap and trade program for many years and has an agreement with Quebec through a cross-linked border market, the regulated 
actors in the two jurisdictions were able to trade their allocated emissions allowances. But the state's program was challenged by the Trump administration, which basically claimed that California couldn't engage in foreign policy, that that was reserved solely for the federal government. But so far, California has been successful at the federal trial level and has been allowed to continue with its particular agreement. And then there's the possibility of truly local or state-based measures, or potentially even a federal framework to eliminate zoning restrictions or soften zoning restrictions to allow for greater density in city centers. Because as it happens, individuals who live in big, dense cities tend to produce far less waste and produce far fewer greenhouse gas emissions. And there are many reasons for it. Number one, if you live in a big city that allows you to walk around or has public transit, then you're probably not going to be polluting via a car. And you're probably living in a big building that, while on an absolute level, is producing more emissions. When you divide it by the sheer number of people that are living in it, it actually produces far less on a per-person basis. So the cities tend to be on a per-person basis far more efficient than the suburbs and the rural areas as well. And of course, not everyone wants to move into a big density, and that's perfectly fine too. No one needs to force anyone to do it. But the truth is, a lot more people want to move into these big, more efficient cities, but currently can't because it's either too expensive or there's not enough housing or both. And a lot of that is spurned by the actual laws that are currently on the books, things like zoning that currently limit the amount of infill development that could house more people more efficiently, all the people that want to move into those cities. But let me get down from my soapbox. This video is not intended to be a survey of every possible solution that's out there. Far from it. There's a lot more that lawyers and normal people can actually do to help prevent climate change. Really, the idea was just to spark inspiration in other professionals who you might not assume have a role to play. But if even the lawyers can get involved, then I guarantee other people can as well. Oh, and one last thing. I know right now you're probably fumbling with your phone trying to find the next podcast to listen to, but you can't because this is an ad. But it doesn't have to be that way. Instead, you can go to watchnebula.com slash radio. You can get access to all of our original podcasts ad-free, plus exclusive originals and experimental shows from your favorite educational-ish creators. And best of all, you're helping to support us make even more amazing content. So before you go, check out watchnebula.com slash radio to support this channel and this podcast directly.